Good evening. Thank you all for coming. I'm Sanford Unger, president of Goucher College, and welcome to the Hyman Forum in the Goucher College Athenaeum. Uh, pleased that you can be with us for the annual celebration of the Roxana Cannon Arsht Class of 1935 Center for Ethics and Leadership. The Arsht Center was created thanks to Adrian Arsht, the daughter of Roxana Cannon Arsht, to explore ethics and leadership issues across the range of liberal arts disciplines. And our Arsht Center event now coincides every year with the annual meeting of the Goucher Committee of Visitors, an advisory board of the college comprised of corporate citizens, foundation and nonprofit executives, alumni and alumni, and parents and other friends of the college. The uh, founder and chair of the Committee of Visitors is Fern Hurst, who is right there. Fern, thank you very much. Unfortunately, Adrienne Arsh sends her regards. She was sorry she couldn't be here tonight uh, for the Arsh lecture, but we are very pleased to have the Committee of Visitors with us. A few words of introduction about our guest of honor, uh, our visiting scholar for the Arsh Center, Harvard University professor Michael Sandel. Uh, Michael has been called by the Washington Post the most prominent college professor in America, and his course Justice for uh, Harvard undergraduates has now enrolled more than 15,000 students over the past two decades altogether. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller Justice, which will be for sale over here and signed along with his other, with his new book perhaps as well. And uh, his other books include uh, Liberalism and the Limits of Justice, Democracy's Discontent, and Public Philosophy, essay, Essays on Morality and Politics. And the new book, which will be, it's also available tonight, is called What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets. And that is the theme of Michael's uh, talk tonight. Just, uh, and it, just advance notice, this will be a little different from some of our usual uh, events and uh, this is a very interactive uh, opportunity and so uh, members of the audience will, will have an opportunity to, to uh, participate with Michael Sandel this evening. You'll see what I mean in uh, just a short time. We will, however, um, potentially take questions from the audience afterwards and our usual rules will prevail that Goucher students will have the first priority on asking questions. Uh, there is a uh, brief uh, DVD that we're going to see first before I actually present you to Michael. So, I'm here we go. What's the right thing to do? That's a question I've asked thousands of students at Harvard University in my class, Justice. Would it be just to torture the suspect to get the information? Do you think that a person with a bad parent owes them less? Is it all right to steal a drug that your, your child needs to survive? My name is Michael Sandell. And over the years, thousands of students have joined me for an ongoing debate 
about the moral decisions we face in our everyday lives. This is a course about justice and we begin with a story. Suppose you're the driver of a trolley car. Nikolai, if you didn't think you'd get caught, would you pay your taxes? Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Do I think I should be able to bid for a baby? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a market, I mean. In a situation that desperate, you have to do what you have to do to survive. Um, you have to do what you have to do. You have, gotta do what you gotta do. What do you say to Marcus? I've never been in a class like this before, where they kind of asked you to, to, to really think and consider the, the moral dilemma. I've never had such a fun class in my life, you know? We turn to the great philosophers of our past for answers. Do you think Bentham is wrong to add up the collective happiness? I don't think he's wrong, but I think murder is murder in any case. Yeah, well, then Bentham has to be wrong. If you're right, he's wrong. OK, then he's wrong. All right. right. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. And we turn to the present to challenge the reasoning behind the moral choices we make every day. I think that what happened in the past has no bearing on what happens today, and I think that discriminating based on race should always be wrong. I just want to say that white people have had their own affirmative action in this country for more than 400 years. It's called nepotism and quid pro quo. So there's nothing wrong with correcting the injustice and discrimination that's been done to black people for 400 years. Even effort depends a lot on fortunate family circumstances for which we can claim no credit. Raise your hand, those of you here who are first in birth order. <laughs> I am too, by the way. Mike, I noticed you raised your hand. Taking justice was really an eye-opening experience for me. Everything that you've thought of up to that point becomes questioned, becomes challenged. The purpose of sex is, one, for its procreative um, uses, and two, for a unifying purpose between a man and a woman. Your beliefs are your beliefs, and that's fine. But civil union is not marriage within the Catholic Church. What is the right thing to do? People have been arguing for, for millennia, really, uh, and there's still not one definite answer. Um, and in ways that's, that makes philosophy impossible, but it makes it beautiful at the same time that we're still debating similar questions. And the reason they're unavoidable, the reason they're inescapable, is that we live some answer to these questions every day. And now, I had the chance to invite you to join us as Harvard opens its classroom to the world. Let's give a Goucher College welcome to Michael Sandel. Thank you, thank you, President Unger, for those Warm words of welcome, and thanks to all of you for coming. What I would like to do tonight is to have a discussion drawn from the themes of my new book. I want to try it out on you. And it's really about one question, which is simple to state, but not so easy to answer. What should be 
the role of money and markets in our society. Today, there are fewer and fewer things that money can't buy. In Santa Barbara, California, if you are sentenced to a jail term and you don't like the standard accommodations, you can buy a prison cell upgrade. <laughs> you know how much it is? $82 per night. Not bad, you think? Um, you know, we sell the right to immigrate. Most people don't realize this. It's hard to get a green card. There's a long queue. But if a foreign investor who wants to come live in the United States invests $500,000 and hires at least, creates at least 10 American jobs, in two years, he or she gets a green card, the right to immigrate. It's a form of paying to jump to the head of the line. It happens in more mundane places, airports, those long lines at the security checkpoint. If you don't like waiting on those long lines, the airlines will now sell you the right to jump to the head of the line for security, if you pay for an expensive ticket or if you just pay a premium for fast track, they call it. Or suppose you want to contribute to solving a pressing social problem, the birth of babies to drug-addicted women. There's a charity you can contribute to that tries to solve this problem by offering drug-addicted women $300 to undergo sterilization. Use of the market, cash incentive. Or if you have a new prescription drug that you want to sell, you can market it directly to consumers. If you've seen the, those commercials on the evening news or on most any sporting event, you could be forgiven for thinking that the greatest health crisis in the world today is not malaria or sleeping sickness or river blindness, but a rampant epidemic of erectile dysfunction. <laughs> You've seen those ads. Over the past three decades, our society has undergone a quiet revolution. We have drifted, without quite realizing it, we have drifted from having a market economy to becoming a market society. The difference is this, a market economy is a tool. It's a valuable and effective tool for organizing productive activity. A market society is a place where almost everything is up for sale. It's a place where market values and market thinking reach into spheres of life traditionally governed by other values, non-market norms. Why does this matter? Why should we care about it? Well, because gradually it remakes the character of social life, personal relations, and ultimately, I think, democracy. Take the fact that ads, commercial ads are just about 
everywhere. I heard when I came to Baltimore today of a debate about whether to place ads on fire trucks to raise money for the, for the city. Ads are appearing in places that once were commercial-free zones. Consider product placement. Product placement has always been a familiar feature of, of movies and television shows. But recently, paid product placement has even appeared in books. There's a British novelist called Faye Weldon. I don't know, if, has anyone heard of her? Not too long ago, she wrote a book that was commissioned by Bulgari, the Italian jewelry company. The deal was this. They paid her a certain amount of money, and she agreed in this novel to mention Bulgari jewelry at least a dozen times. The title of the book, aptly enough, was The Bulgari Connection. <laughs> she actually exceeded the required number of product mentions, mentioning Bulgari 34 times. Now, some authors expect, uh, expressed outrage at the idea of a corporate-sponsored novel. Critics pointed to the clunkiness of the product-laden prose, as in phrases like this from the book. Quote, a Bulgari necklace in the hand is worth two in the bush, said Doris. <laughs> or this. Quote, they snuggled together happily for a bit, all passion spent, and she met him at Bulgari that lunchtime. <laughs> now, product placement in books hasn't really taken off, but with the advent of digital and electronic publishing, I suspect that the activity of reading is going to come in closer and closer proximity to advertising. Last year, Amazon began selling two different versions of the Kindle. One is the regular version. The other is cheaper. It's $40 less. The deal is that on the cheaper Kindle, you have to be willing to put up with commercial advertising on the homepage and on the screensaver. Would it be worth it? Would you go for that, for $40? There are other places, unaccustomed places, where ads are appearing. People's bodies now are billboards. There was, it began, I think, as far as I can tell, with a little Mexican restaurant in San Francisco in 1998. This little restaurant called Casa Sanchez wanted to create some publicity. They didn't have a big advertising budget, so they offered a free lunch for life to anyone willing to have the restaurant's logo tattooed to his or her body. The logo, by the way, was a boy in a sombrero riding a giant ear of corn. <laughs> now, the restaurant people thought that very few would take them up on the offer, but they were wrong. Within months, more than 40 people were walking the streets of San Francisco sporting Casa Sanchez tattoos, and often they'd come by 
at lunchtime to claim their free burritos. The owners thought, this is terrific. What a success. But then they sat down with a calculator and figured out that if everyone with the tattoo showed up for lunch every day for the next 50 years, the restaurant would owe $5.8 million in burritos. Now, ads in commercial advertising are beginning to appear in unaccustomed places. Not only that, as a way of solving social problems, we increasingly resort to money, to cash incentives. And I'd like to put to you one of them and see what people think. There are many school districts around the country, especially urban school districts, that have a lot of struggling kids, low academic achievers, who aren't motivated. And so many cities have adopted cash incentive programs to try to get kids to improve their grades or their test scores or to read more books. They've tried this in New York, in Washington, in Chicago. In Dallas, they offer third graders $2 for each book they read. Now, I'd like to hear what people think about this. How many people think that's an interesting idea worth trying, and how many find it objectionable and would oppose it? Let's say if you were in charge of, of the school district. Let's just see first by a show of hands. How many people would be in favor, at least, of giving it a try? And how many would be opposed? Pretty heavy majority against. All right, now let's hear why. Let's hear your reasons. We have people with microphones who will come. And who? let's start with those who object. And then we'll hear from those who favor it. Who's willing to start us off? Why would you object? Yes. Wait. All right, there's someone in the back. They'll get you a microphone in a minute. Uh, let's start with the person in the back. Yes. Stand up so we can see who you, where you are. Go ahead with the microphone. Uh, ooh, that's really loud. And tell, tell us your name. My name is Dylan McDonough. Dylan? I'm, I'm a freshman at Goucher. Okay. You're against? Um, I'm objectioning it because in sixth grade, my dad offered me a big screen TV if I got all A's. And I got all A's in sixth grade and I got a big screen TV, and after that, I had C's for like the rest of my <laughs> middle school and high school career. So, you know, it was awesome for me, but as far as a motivating factor, you know, I did it when I needed it, and then I stopped when it wasn't there, so it doesn't really work. So, so Dylan speaks from personal experience. And Dylan, wait. Yes. Stay there for a minute. <laughs> Do you still have the TV, by the way? Yeah. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Somehow you must have rallied, though, and done well enough to get into Goucher. Yeah, I pulled it off somehow. It's kind of a mystery to me and my parents, but uh, All right. I made it. All right, stay there, Dylan. Someone down here also had an objection. Yes. Okay, my, my name's Angie, and I'm Goucher, class of <clears throat> 64. Um, 
that, that's public money, and I'm thinking about how you're using the tax money, and knowing myself in the third grade, unlike Dylan, I'd have cost them an awful lot of money, and it wouldn't have gotten me to read one more book. It wouldn't have motivated you? No way, because I was, I was an avid reader. All so right, well then, the program isn't designed, Angie, for people like you. You were already reading a lot of books. Oh, okay, so they're going to pay this, this kid down that's in the next row to right. read and not pay me? Oh, I see. Whoa. So, well, we, I'm so, going right, to stop reading. <laughs> you're going to stop. All right, well, suppose we pay you and the kid who needs motivating $2 per each book. You'd, you'd be for it or against it? Uh, no, not, no, not really, because, uh, well, I would want to see some kind of cost-benefit analysis. Cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. So you'd want to know how, many, well, how much it costs. Put aside the taxpayer side of it, because these projects are funded uh, by uh, donated money, people who believe in this. So put aside the taxpayer aspect. Now, you want a cost-benefit analysis. You want to know if it works, right? Yeah. And you want to know whether people actually read more books. Right. In the case of Dallas, I'll tell, well, in New York it didn't work. It didn't help the kids get better grades or test scores. In Dallas, the money for the books, cash for reading, did work in the sense that kids read more books. The books became shorter, <laughs> but they read more of them. How about that? Now that you know, I, I've given you a you kind know, like, of cost. Like how many more? Yeah, I, I How many know. more? All is right. Is this so costing me $100,000 to get 20 kids to read more, or is it $100,000 to get 10,000 kids to read more? So yeah. you want to know if, the, if know it's if it cost effective. All right. Fair enough. I want to hear now from someone who will defend, someone who voted in favor. What do you say to Dylan? What do you say? Someone give me a reply to Dylan who said... He got the flat screen TV, he got an A, that term, but then that kind of ruined his motivation afterwards. Who's in favor who can reply to Dylan's objection? Yes. All right, stand up so we can all see and hear you. All right, all right let, we've got a microphone. Right, not the parent, not the child of a parent who can afford a flat screen TV, right. but a kid who every single day comes home, they don't know if the mom's going to be there, their dad's going to be there, or if somebody's going to be strung out. This is a kid who comes home every day, doesn't know whether or not there's going to be food in the house. Right. So that's what I'm saying. If you're going to give this kid two bucks for reading a book every time, that could be food on their table. So they might need it, and it might motivate them. Exactly. And if it does, wait... Millie? Many. Many. Yeah. Many. And if it did motivate kids to read more or to get better grades, why not? Yeah. And these kids are, are not from families, this is a reply to Dylan, who can give them flat screen televisions. They're kids who need the money and who need the motivation. Right. Okay. So who, who has a reply to Minnie? Yes. Okay, so I think we also have to think about why the kids aren't reading. So is it because I just don't want to read this book or is it because I lack the resources or I maybe am not intelligent enough to read the book? So I think 
Like, it's like, why the kids aren't reading the book? And if it's something that we can do academically to help them to read more books, then that may be a different way of approaching it. I also it would be a different way, but let me at first tell us your name. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Nadira. Nadira? Yes. Nadira, why would you look for other ways of motivating them? If the cash works, why wouldn't you settle for that? Okay, I just, I mean, I just don't see that as a good incentive because what are we teaching our kids by telling them, if you, I'll give you $2 if you read this book. They're always going to be looking for cash or for something like that to make them do things. So it teaches them, you think, it teaches them the wrong lesson, the wrong attitudes. I definitely think toward so. Toward reading and learning. Yes. It teaches them, people like, people like that answer. It sounds like, Nadira... It sounds like your reason is the reason held by many of the people, at least, who objected, as you did, to this plan. And if I understand your objection correctly, it may get the kids to read more books, even if it got kids to read more but books. But for how long? It's like when you get to college, no one's going to say, here, I'll give you this much money if you do this much work. No. They, don't, they don't do that at Goucher? Well, here's the thing. Let me... <laughs> I, I have received scholarships. Let me let me. Oh, but that's different. Let me preface this. I have received scholarships and things, but no one is like Nadira. If you read in my education class, Lejeune, if you read this book and write this paper, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars. No, they if haven't. They haven't I need to you read that. it and write the paper if I want to get the good grade. Right, right. So, uh, Nadira, you're saying that what we're trying to achieve is not just to maximize the number of books read but to inculcate certain attitudes toward reading and learning. Right. And you worry that the cash incentive might crowd out those attitudes, the learning for the love of it, reading books for the love of it. I mean, there, yes. And you know that if you work hard and you you go to college and you do all the necessary things, hopefully, because there are some people who do the necessary things and don't reach where they want to in life, but right. you're hoping that all of this hard work is going to pay off so that you have a career and that you have a job that supports you and your family financially as well as in other ways. Okay, very good. Okay, Thank you to, to the whole group of you who contributed to this discussion. <laughs> really interesting. What it brings out in Adira's comment which won some approval from the, those who are skeptical of this plan, is a certain feature of money and markets and cash incentives that applies in a lot of cases, and that is that sometimes paying people to do something may actually crowd out or corrupt the attitudes we want to develop. A friend of mine gives his young children one dollar for each thank you note they write. You know, if someone takes them out to dinner or gives them a gift. I've received some of these thank you notes. <laughs> and I can tell by reading them that they were written under duress. <laughs> now, my wife and I look askance at this practice, we wonder how those kids will turn out. And there are two possibilities. It might be that by being paid to write thank you notes, they get in the habit of it. And so when they grow up, having written lots of thank you notes, they'll keep on doing it even when no one's paying them. That's one scenario. But it might turn out when these kids grow up 
that the lesson they will have learned is that writing thank you notes is a chore, a kind of piecework that you do for pay, and when the money stops, they will stop, in which case their moral education might be impaired. They might find it difficult to learn the virtue of gratitude. That's in line with Nadira's worry about paying kids to read. So for any use of a market incentive, especially in the domain of education, or health, or civic life, where we care not only about outcomes, but also about attitudes and values and norms, we have to ask ourselves this question. Will the use of money crowd out values and norms and attitudes that we care about? Which suggests that economics is not a self-sufficient science of policy. Because the questions we've just been discussing are not purely economic questions. They're economic questions that are bound up with questions about values and norms and what attitudes are desirable and worth cultivating. Some economists are beginning to discover this. In Switzerland, they were trying to find a place to locate a nuclear waste site. Now, no community wants a nuclear waste site in their backyard. It's risky, it's dangerous, no one wants it. But the Swiss government had identified a couple of potential sites as likely to be the safest, and there was one of them was a small town in the mountains. Some economists did a survey because the town would have to agree. And they asked the members of the town, if the parliament decides that your town is the safest place in the country for it, would you agree? Would you give your approval to the nuclear waste site being located here. 51% said yes, despite the risks. 51% said yes. Then they asked a second question. They sweetened the deal. They said, suppose the legislature offers to compensate every member of the town a substantial amount of money each year in virtue of accepting it, up to $8,000 per year. Then would you be in favor? And what do you suppose the result was? More? Up? How many this time? From 51% to what, do you think? 80? 90%? It dropped in half to 25%. Now, from the standpoint of standard economic reasoning, this is a puzzling result because Standard economic reasoning says if you offer a payment for something, there may already be some motivations existing, but you offer a payment, you offer incentive, you increase the willingness to do the thing. Here, it had the opposite effect. So what was going on? Well, something like what some of you worried would happen with paying kids to read. They asked the people, who changed their minds, why did you change your minds? They said, we didn't want to be bribed. See, when they, the 51% who were willing to accept it without payment were doing it out of a sense of civic virtue or civic duty. The waste had to go somewhere. This was the safest place. They were willing to accept the risk. But now, when it becomes a financial calculation, 
the monetary payment crowded out the sense that they were really being asked to make a sacrifice for the sake of the common good. And so it decreased the willingness. In Israel, there were some daycare centers that had a familiar problem. Parents coming late to pick up their children at the end of the day. With the help of some economists, the daycare centers instituted a policy to try to address this. They created a fine, instituted a fine, for late arriving parents. What do you think happened? All right, yeah, now everybody says, more parents came late. Yes, they, that's what happened. So here again, from the standpoint of standard economic reasoning, it's an anomaly, it's a paradox. You heighten the price of a good, and more people consume that good, arriving late. So, well, why did that happen? Well, it happened because before when there was no price, people felt an obligation, they felt guilty if they came late. They were inconveniencing a teacher who had to wait and stay late. Now they thought to themselves, I'm paying for a service, like a babysitting service. So why not come late if it's convenient? The monetary payment, the cash incentive, the fine in this case, was treated as a fee for a service, and it crowded out the sense of obligation to show up on time. So these are all examples of the way in which sometimes the use of cash incentives or money can corrupt or degrade or crowd out non-market values. Now, how do we know when to worry about this? Well, the only way we can know is to deliberate together about the values and attitudes and norms that we believe social institutions should promote. And that's not easy to do, because it means that before we can come up with an economic answer, we have to ask a, a moral question. What actually is the purpose, the end, the goal of teaching and learning, or of health, or of environmental protection, or of allocating civic burdens and duties. Now, to bring morality into the picture, to bring in questions about the meaning of goods and social practices invites disagreement. We disagree about the purposes of social institutions such as these. And so I think we often shy away from engaging in public debate about moral questions, questions about how goods are properly valued. Should we pay people to relinquish their reproductive capacity, the drug-addicted women? Well, it depends on how you think the reproductive capacity of women is properly regarded and valued. And we disagree about things like that. The fact that we disagree should not be, I would suggest, should not be a reason to shrink from those debates. Because if we don't discuss openly and explicitly questions about how to value social practices, 
It's not as though there is a neutral alternative. Markets will decide those questions for us. And that's what's been happening over the past 30 years. In many ways, we have accepted without really thinking about it the assumption that markets are the primary instrument for achieving the public good. We haven't really had a public debate about where markets serve the public good and where they don't belong. And because of that, I think, not only have markets and money reached into places they don't belong, but our public discourse has become impoverished. I think that's why we're shouting at each other all the time, rather than reasoning together about big questions that matter. Now, there's another toll. We've spoken about crowding out values. I think one of the greatest dangers of a drifting toward a society where everything is up for sale has to do with the effect on civic life and the effect consequences for democracy. When, when I was a kid, I lived in Minnesota and I was a baseball fan and I would go see the Minnesota Twins play and the difference between the most expensive box seat and the cheapest seat in the bleachers was, what would you guess? $20? It was about 10 It was three fifty for a box seat behind the dugout and about a dollar to sit in the bleachers. The effect was that when people went to a baseball game, it was one of... It was one of those places where people from all walks of life and social backgrounds and economic statuses more or less, more or less, sat side by side under common circumstance. CEOs sat side by side with mailroom clerks. Everybody ate the same soggy hot dogs and drank the same stale beer. And when it rained, everyone got wet. Then in the 80s and 90s, sports stadiums around the country built these skyboxes, luxury skyboxes, birches in the sky, behind plexiglass, air-conditioned comfort, fancy food. Now, I'm not entirely against skyboxes. I've seen a few games from them. It's, it's a lot of fun. But now there's less, when you go to a baseball game, the CEOs and corporate executives sitting up there don't bump into people from other walks of life. It's less of a class-mixing experience. And what's happened with skyboxes in baseball and football stadia, in a way, has been happening in our society as a whole. The more things that money can buy, the greater the tendency for the affluent and for those of modest means to live separate ways of life. Whether it's opting out, buying their way out of, or buying our way out of public transportation, public schools, public recreational facilities, public health facilities. There are fewer and fewer occasions 
when men and women from different walks of life encounter one another. You might call it the skyboxification of American life. What happens is we look up because it happens by accretion, not in one dramatic moment. We look up and we find that we live and work and shop and play in different places. Our children go to different schools. Skyboxification. It's not good for democracy, nor is it really a satisfying way to live. I think even for those in the skyboxes. It's not good for democracy for the following reason. Democracy does not require perfect equality, but it does require that we share in a common life, that we encounter one another and bump up against one another in the ordinary course of our lives. Because this is how we learn to negotiate our, our differences. This is how we learn to abide people from backgrounds different from ourselves. And this is how we come to care for the common good. So the question of markets, it might seem on the face of it to be a purely economic question. It isn't. The question of markets and where they belong is really a question of how we want to live. Do we want to live in a society where everything is up for sale? Or are there certain moral and civic goods that markets do not honor and money cannot buy? Thank you very much. Thank you. So, shall we have? Sure, sure. Or I could talk to you from here. No, I'll, I'll come over there. I'll bring this. Michael, um, if I were uh, trying to write a summary of what you've just told us, um, I, my lead would be that egalitarianism is losing. That it's, it, though we believe and pretend that we've solved some of these differences and tensions in our society, in our culture, in our political system, that in fact egalitarianism is up against it. Is that, is that right? Yes, provided that we understand. Now, some people hear the word egalitarian and they say, well, that must mean you're in favor of a leveling equality where everyone has the same income. It's not... That's, that's not what I mean to say. Oh, I understand. Yeah. And I just want to clarify for right. those who might hear that word and think uh, and, and have a different idea in mind. But I think what you mean uh, and what I mean is equality in the sense of democratic equality, this sense that we're more or less... Um, despite differences, uh, some people can afford a big flat screen television, some a smaller one, some fancy vacations, other go, others go backpacking. But apart from those differences, that, that we have enough equality of condition 
so that we think of ourselves as being in it together for civic purposes? Yes. So the, the answer is yes. Or, or at least that we create a floor yeah. below which people should not have to fall. Right. I, I think that's one that definition. Be, yes. And um, so I don't know if that's the box seat or the, 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 the dollar seat, but um, it seems to me that the trend you are detecting is runs the risk of taking away that floor. Yes. That, that if yes. people can't pay, they can't have the same access. Right, and that matters for two reasons. It matters because those who lack the basic provision of necessary goods, decent health care, enough to eat, good educational opportunity, it's unfair to them. So partly it's a matter of fairness. Right. And there is a second reason to worry about it, which is it's bad for all of us, not just those at the bottom. Of course. Because even those of us who may inhabit from time to time the skyboxes lose something if our society as a whole doesn't provide the basis for the solidarity and fellow feeling and mutual obligation that makes for a decent society. So I have three basic sets of questions about this. Um, I don't, let, let me put them all out there so I don't forget them. Uh, one is, how did this happen? And is there someone to blame, to hold responsible for it? Uh, secondly, is this what you and I would say un is an unfortunate trend? Um, is it unique to this country and this culture? Or is it worse in this country and culture than elsewhere? And third, uh, what can people like the people in this room, the students of this particular college, what can they try to do about it? How can we fix it? Can we fix it? Right. So those are my three right. next questions. Then we're going to go to some questions okay. from the audience. All right. But if you, if you don't mind taking those one at a time. I will. Yeah, those are great questions. Let me start with the second. Is it unique to the United States? No. But as you suggest, it's particularly pronounced in American society. But societies everywhere, especially ones that have achieved uh, affluence, including the established um, industrial democracies of the world and the rising democratic capitalist societies, to one degree or another, are all confronting this. And in some ways, it's played out more dramatically in America because it plays into our strong tradition of individualism and market society has a greater momentum here than certainly in Europe, for example. As to go to the first question, what's caused this? Are there villains? I think what's caused it is something that goes beyond a particular villain. It is true that within the academy from the 70s and 80s onwards, there has been a movement within economics to make economics an imperial social science. Hmm. And to explain, in fact, I, I look back, the inter most famous widely used textbook for economics in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was that of Paul Samuelson. And I went back and to an early edition of his book to see how he defined economics 
And he identified it with its traditional subject matter, inflation, recession, uh, wages, the stock market, foreign trade, how to avoid depression, how to avoid inflation, how to raise standards of living, the standard subject matter of economics. Then I looked at what is now one of the most prominent introductory economics textbooks. It's by my colleague, Greg Mankiw. And the way he defined economics was much more abstract and more ambitious. It had nothing to do with the subject matter. It was an economy, he says, he writes, is uh, people within a society interacting with one another and responding to incentives. So to some extent, this is happening against the background of the development of, of the, the uh, heightened ambition and abstraction of economics to become the science of human behavior, not just of, of wages and prices and uh, the allocation of material goods. I don't say that the economists are the villains. They are expressing something in the culture. And I think it goes back to the, the end of the Cold War when we said to ourselves, we're the, we're the only system left standing. And that must mean that, de that democratic capitalism has won, but by capitalism we assume there is only one kind of capitalism and it's market driven and it applies across the board to everything. And I think that was much too simple a conclusion to draw from the Cold War. And since then, we've seen the trend of markets reaching into every sphere of life. So it's Ronald Reagan's fault? Well, I wouldn't say it's his fault. It began, <laughs> actually, you can trace this to the early 80s, the three decades of what I, in the book I call market triumphalism. So it begins on the political scene with the arrival of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. But what's interesting is even when they they leave the scene and are replaced by Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. What the subsequent leaders did was not to challenge the fundamental market faith that markets are the primary instruments for achieving the, the public good. They moderated its effects, they humanized it somewhat, but they consolidated the basic idea that markets are the primary instruments for achieving the public good. And we've been in the thrall of that set of assumptions ever since, I think. Now, what, sh what can the students at Goucher do about it? That's your Yes. What can, what can good people do about this? People with good intentions, right. with the right values, who, who believe that equality right. is worth restoring. Right. Well, first, beginning with the students, they've got to learn economics. They've got to learn even the, the mainstream economics that I was criticizing. But then they also need to study more broadly uh, history and moral and political philosophy so that they will appreciate how economics is really just, should be, I think, a subfield, a branch of moral and political philosophy. Back in the day of Adam Smith, it was one subject, or John Stuart Mill, moral and political economy. And now economics has been hived off as if it's a value-neutral science. So that's at the level of education and, and learning and reflecting. But then beyond that, going out into the world, 
I think there are lots of pursuits that can challenge the hold, the grip of market triumphalism, um, whether in the field of education or healthcare or national security or the environment. These debates are going on all the time. And so what these students and all of us can do is raise hard questions about where money and markets can be effective in pursuing and advancing the public good and where they can be corrosive in the ways that we were discussing. Let's go to the audience for questions. I, I'd like to, we, we have, Goucher students ask questions first, I'm sorry, but I will try to come back to you. Hannah. And we'll ask you to identify yourself, as we usually do. Yeah. Hi, I'm Hannah. I'm a senior history major. Um, and I was interested in your discussion about the, um, where this came from, where it started. And I'm in a class studying early American capitalism. And I'm wondering if it even went back to colonial times when you have these small scale communities working in morals and they trust each other and not paying back your debt made you morally a bad person. And then after the revolution, we're an independent nation, we're an economy, and all of a sudden not paying back your debt was illegal and morals went out the window. So I'm wondering if, is there a flaw in the system itself when the system began? Can it be traced that far back? Well, it's, thank you for the question. In the early Re American Republic, there was one very important difference in the structure of the economy in relation to politics and democracy. Democracy, and you, this goes back to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson thought that democracy requires decentralized political communities of the kind that you're describing and that you've read about. Hamilton, as you know, wasn't so sure about that. He thought the way to create a great democracy was to create a great national economy, which is why he was for a national bank and all the things that Jefferson worried about. This debate about the scale of economic life and of politics has, has been going on ever since. Fast forward to the early 20th century. By now, the, the economy is national, big corporations, monopolies and trusts. But the democracy is still locally based, very weak national government. So we have a great debate between Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson in the election of 1912, 100 years ago. But what they're debating is, they're debating economics. What should be the structure of the economy from the standpoint of how do we make it democratically accountable? And TR said, we have to nationalize politics in the national government so it can regulate the economy. And Woodrow Wilson, hearkening back to Jefferson, said, no, we've got to decentralize the trusts and the monopolies so that local democracy can control them. What's interesting, if we now think about the present day, look at our political debate now. Where are those debates about the shape of the economy and about democracy, they're nowhere really. 
we're shouting about partisan differences, often very small. We debate tax policy, whether or not to cut taxes or to raise taxes on the wealthy. But big questions about how to make now the global economy amenable to democratic control, those big questions, where markets belong, we're not even asking those questions in our politics, which I think is one of the reasons our politics is so empty and frustrating to a great many people. A question up there, yes. Uh, hi, I'm Jonathan. Um, so you, so um, the question that I want to ask is that um, economics, the, the, where it comes from, I learned this in one of my philosophy classes, I forget which one, uh, is that it comes from the word oikos, which yes. in Greek means household. Yes, uh, that's and right. And I'm wondering if the, the second definition of economics that you gave uh, from the newer textbook, wouldn't that then be somewhat of a more accurate definition, considering that uh, it, the household would be where like a sphere of life would take place as compared to stuff like foreign trade policy, which would seem to be much more specific right. as, as compared to something general? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's true that economics comes from oikos, which is Greek for household. Jonathan is exactly right by that, about that. What's interesting is that term was most famously developed and used by Aristotle in ancient Athens. And when he talked about the household, the oikos, this is the forerunner of economics, his whole point, this is in Aristotle's politics where he talks about the oikos, his whole point was that management of a household is different from democratic political community. His whole point was it's not enough to attend to household needs, to economic matters. Ultimately, political community is about realizing the common good, not just managing your own, your own household. And so he, he said the counterpart to oikos is polis, which meant the city-state or the political community. And his hope, the whole point of his, his political economy, he was an economist but also a political philosopher. He says we can't think about politics as just concerned with self-interest because it's more than the household. It's about more than economics. And what's happened today is we've slipped away from that higher ideal of democracy. And we treat democracy as if it were just about collecting people's preferences, as if it were just about managing self-interest. That's an impoverished view of democracy that actually corresponds to the picture you get if you assume that democracy is just economics by other means. So the, the link that you suggest going back to the Greeks actually I think is, leads to a powerful insight about just this, just this dilemma. Are there other questions ready? Yes. Um, hi, I'm Alexandra, um, I'm a senior. Um, you've spoken about this trend um, in terms of the last 30 years, and I was wondering if there was any correlation um, to the boom in technological advances that also occurred in the last 30 years, and if that might have had any effect on this trend. 
Well, the boom in technology, and especially information and communications technology, may be connected to this. Technology can be a force for good or ill from the standpoint of civic life. We have mountains of information at our disposal now with Google. We have ways of connecting with people whom we've never seen through social media and networking. And so some people say this is a great democratic moment afforded by new communications technology and new information technology. But if you go online and look at many of the comments or discussion blogs associated with newspaper editorials or magazine articles, most of it is not very edifying. Most, much of it is downright rude and sometimes even vulgar and hostile. And so we get in with cable television and talk radio, uh, basically f uh, ideological food fights and shouting matches. So even as we've had this proliferation of opportunity with new communications technologies, our political discourse seems to be more and more empty and impoverished and partisan and full of vitriol. And it's an interesting question why. And the short answer, I think, is that it's not enough democratic deliberation. Uh, it's, it's not enough just to be able to connect or to communicate with strangers. We need social institutions in, 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 in civil society to draw us together in common purposes, not one single big one, but many different, a plurality of common purposes. NGOs, civil societies, trade unions, PTAs, sports leagues, affinity groups, environmental groups, and so on, movements. Because only then do we really have a shared basis for democratic deliberation. So I think the verdict is out on whether the internet and social media will simply be a new, more effective tool for selling stuff, or whether it can be converted into an opportunity for a better kind of public discourse. Yes. Hi, my name is Suzanne Saladin. I'm a Goucher II, which are the non-traditional undergraduate students. Um, I'm a senior graduating with a psychology and Latin American studies degree. Uh, my question is related to your thoughts and opinions about the business of immigration. I worked in the past five or six years in the community uh, translating with, with students, with uh, families, children, and I've uh, been learning a lot in classes uh, in international relations and also human rights about the business of immigration and deportation. There are different um, ways to buy your, your citizenship and do it financially just giving the opportunities to certain people to be right. uh, in the United States, but also with the business of deportation and how that affects, um, with people just, it's more of a motivation to 
gather people because so many of the businesses and governmental agencies and independent companies are related to the deportation that has become a business more right. so than a human and, rights issue. And there are private, thank you for that. that in fact, this is a good instance of privatization that I, that I didn't touch upon. It's a very powerful case. There are growing, uh, there is a growing business in private prisons, including privately owned detention centers, as I'm sure you've encountered. And this raises the potential for lobbying by the companies that own these detention centers, lobbying for stricter policies of rounding up um, illegal immigrants because that increases the intake. A, a similar, similar thing is happening with uh, private prisons where the companies are given a financial, powerful financial incentive to lobby state legislatures to increase sentencing, it fills the beds. So here is a case, both with immigration detention facilities and private prisons, where the introduction of markets and market motivations can be corrupting of the policymaking uh, process. And I think you've raised a very powerful instance of this. Ben, there you are. No? All right, great. Hi, my name is Ben Muser. I'm a senior uh, history major and social political theory minor, which seems like a good combination from what you say. Um, so that's and validating. get the microphone a little closer. Yeah. Like this? Oh, there we go. Um, you said that uh, to have democratic deliberation, you need to have a shared basis of interest. You talked about PTA groups, um, various social organizations at all levels of society. Um, but what about people who don't share those interests? It seems by what you're saying, to have democratic deliberation, people need to be able to find bases to share with one another and to find a commonality. Right. Is it possible to have some kind of politics, a democratic politics, that is not based on that, that's based on some kind of plurality and difference? Well, I don't think that looking for occasions for commonality within civil society necessarily conflicts with a flourishing pluralism and respect for difference, I think the two can go together. Tocqueville, when he came to America in the 1830s, was struck by the way American democracy depended on starting small. He looked at the New England township. Starting on the small, in the small sphere within our reach, he said, developing habits of participation, of caring for a good bigger than oneself. And then those habits point outward, beyond the small community, beyond the township, toward a broader citizenship. And one of the skills we learn, even in small associations, is how to appreciate and contend with disagreement and with difference and with dissonance. I think that's one of the central, that capacity, and it points to the pluralism you're asking about, is one of the, the civic virtues most essential to, to our time. We're here. I'm uh, John Gould, I'm a junior. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Um, I've, I've been studying in the UK for the last year, 
and as you all probably know, college or university is a lot cheaper over there. That's like a thousand pounds, and now it's going up a little bit. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting meeting students who didn't have a, a lot of debt over their heads or whose parents weren't paying a lot of money. And back to incentives, um, they don't have the same incentive to pay off this debt or to make back this money in the same way. And you know, back in the U.S., a lot of my friends want to be stockbrokers. They want to, you know, because that's seen as the the way to make money. And through that, you gain prestige and right. you gain uh, other things. And pay off debt very often. And, and you pay off debt. So the system incentivizes you to work for yourself. Uh, Robert Putnam wrote an interesting book on social capital, which is uh, simply defined, you know, why people engage in Good Samaritan acts or why people don't steal, and it's because they think that other people are looking out for them, and that's the way the community works. Right. So it seems that by incentivizing things, you can't incentivize being a good Samaritan monetarily, it wouldn't work. So by this system where we pay a lot for college, or we let our kids, or we, we give our kids money to read books, we're not instilling uh, social capital, right. and we're obviously eroding our democracy. Right. Thank you for that, and I, I'm sympathetic with the gist of what you've said, and it's true, you've pointed us to another hard dilemma, which is how to finance education in a way that doesn't create such uh, overwhelming debt on many students that it, it disfigures their choice of career in directions that might be at odds with their, their gifts or what they truly care about or are committed to, in Britain now, too, almost just at the time you, you came back, they're, they're struggling with this, changing the, the way they finance education. It's given rise to some similar debates, but we certainly confront that question here, and it's, it's clearly among the challenges um, about the role of money and markets in the choice of, of careers and life paths. Yes, we'll take one or two more. Uh, I saw somebody here. Johnny? Hi. Um, so my name is John McMorris Um I'm a senior here at Goucher. Um, and the question was asked earlier about sort of the progression of, of the economy historically, historically um, and really looking at this progression from more localized currency systems to a national currency system. And within that transition, um, a transition from local systems of valuing to a national um, monopoly on a valuing system. And from what you've talked about, it seems like you have a problem with values, external market values being put on um, circumstances that may not be appropriate for those external market values. Do you right. have something that's intrinsically wrong with that or the monopoly of that valuing system? Well, it is one, it's like a monoculture in a way. When I think that's what you're describing is the monopoly of that value system. Market values uh, seeking to govern all of social life. It, it's like, it, it's a problem similar to a monoculture. It drives out a plurality of values uh, which may be uh, appropriate to different domains of life, different spheres of life. The values that should govern teaching and learning may be different from the ones that should govern health care, which may be different in turn from the ones that should govern national security or police protection or the financing of education or uh, questions of how we relate to our body and 
and reproductive capacities and, and, and family life. So in a way, what I think we risk losing when market values crowd out everything else is the distinctiveness of different spheres of life and the different values they embody. Not everything is properly valued as a commodity, as an object for use, which is why we shrink instinctively from some of these uses of, of money, paying, paying women to be sterilized, for example. We don't think that's the right way of valuing women's bodies or their reproductive capacities. Um, we don't have a market in children because we don't think children are properly valued as things, as commodities, as objects of use. So for each of these domains, we have to figure out and debate because there will be disagreement. How are these aspects of life properly valued according to what norms? And when we don't debate that question, we leave ourselves vulnerable to letting markets give the answer to everything. Thank you very um, much. Mike, there was one other person who's yes. been trying to get yes. Tim. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm Tim Casasa. I'm a senior computer science major. Um, this is less of a question, more of a subject. But I was wondering what you make of, um, uh, well, foundations, institutions like the Andrew Carnegie Foundation or the Bill Gates Foundation or any number of other philanthropic institutions which um, exist as a vehicle to do good in the world, but also enable, um, well, basically enable rich people to reshape the world according to their own view of how it should be. Um, is this necessarily a bad thing? How does it fit in with uh, the rest of um, uh, economizing social values? Right. Well, it's a serious question. I think one thing, you mentioned Andrew Carnegie, the Carnegie Foundation. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the central projects of Andrew Carnegie in, in the early years of his philanthropic projects was the creation of public libraries. To and get that, people to read. Yeah. To get people to read. Get people to without read. Paying without, without, without paying them $2 a month. Without offering, without paying them off. And that seems to me, uh, along with another, a number of projects that foundations undertake, a very worthy contribution to the common good. It, so it all depends on what the cause is. Bill Gates has devoted his resources to global health and education. And there is a risk. I think you've got a point that even generous public-spirited philanthropy does reflect inevitably the view of the world and the priorities of the philanthropists. But I would rather have that problem than have a world in which those who made a lot of money, felt no obligation to make the world a better place and to contribute to the common good. If you go back to the, to the robber barons of the Gilded Age, that period was succeeded actually by a great wave of public philanthropy. 
the Carnegie, the, the Carnegies, the Fords, the Rockefellers, created some of the most consequential uh, foundations in the United States. The latest Gilded Age, the period of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, has not brought about a similar renaissance of philanthropy. There are some, Bill Gates being an example, Warren Buffett, but I think that what we most need to guard against, and this comes back to the, to it really a question of, of civic philosophy, of public philosophy. We need to avoid sliding into the assumption that people who make a lot of money, who are enormously successful financially, do it entirely thanks to their own effort and smarts and talents, rather than viewing themselves as indebted for their success to the society in which they live, to the society that made their success possible. That second spirit animates the great acts of, of philanthropy. So in a way, we come back to a question of public philosophy, of civic philosophy. What are the responsibilities that go with those who amass great wealth, and not only them, to those of us who may not be Carnegie's or Rockefeller's or Gates's, but who nonetheless enjoy, so to speak, the skyboxes of life. Um, what about casting our lot and descending from the, casting our lot with the community as a whole and finding ways to descend from those skyboxes into the shared life of democratic citizenship. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Sandy.